As I said this morning, we're going to continue looking at the Catechism uh, this evening in Lord's Day 30. The two questions and answers, 81 and 82, we'll read those now on page 18. In the back of the Psalter, page 18, question 81 and 82. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins, and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ, and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death. And who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened, and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God would be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till they show amendment of life. Let's read this evening from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll begin reading at verse 17 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 11 from verse 17. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that ye come together not for the better, but for the worse. And the apostle is saying there that when they come together to celebrate the sacrament, it doesn't help them, it hurts them. Well, first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It should have been, but they had so defiled it that it wasn't. For in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry and another is drunken. What? Have ye not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God, and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also, he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. 
For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home. That ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. These two questions of the Heidelberg Catechism, beloved, look at the matter or the question of who may come to the Lord's Supper from two different points of view. The second of the two that we read, question 82, looks at it from the point of view of the church's responsibility. Are they to be admitted to the supper? And then it says that the wrath of God will be kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore, it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the command of Christ, to exclude. So the second question looks at it from the point of view of the church's responsibility. The first question, question 81, looks at it from the point of view of the individual's responsibility. As the form puts it, that everyone consider by himself, personal self-examination. And tonight, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we're going to focus on that. The language that we usually use, and it's used in the form for the administration of the Lord's Supper as well, is the language of worthy partakers, worthy partaker. And so we might be asking the question tonight, am I a worthy partaker? If we take take that question strictly, the answer, of course, is no. None of us are worthy partakers. And then none of us would come. And because of that, may I suggest a better question? The question is this, may I come to the Lord's Supper? Do I have the permission to do that? May I come to the table? That's the question that you and I need to ask ourselves tonight and in this week as we prepare for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It's a question not for others to answer about this, but a question for ourselves to answer. It may be that the church, the elders, and others might say, yes, you may come, but personally, you must answer the question, no, I mayn't come. And that's what the aim of self-examination is. Romans 14, verse 12 puts it this way, every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. And so the aim of the sermon tonight is to answer this question, or to help you to answer this question for yourself. Am I permitted to come to the Lord's Supper? And of course, as you answer that personally, that's a deeply spiritual question. And it comes with a strong warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself. So tonight let's consider 
this, this subject under the theme, preparing to partake. Notice would be first the necessity of that preparation, second the practice of that preparation, and the third the goal of that preparation. Why is it necessary for us to examine ourselves in preparation for coming to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper? Well, first, that's necessary because the Lord's Supper is a sacred meal. That's what the word sacrament means in part, holy. The sacraments are holy ordinances. The fact that this is a sacred meal is plain from the question in the catechism, who may come or for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? And the idea is that there's a limitation on who may come to this sacrament. This is not a wide-open invitation to anyone and to everyone who wants to come. The church says no to some, and some must, through self-examination, before God, sometimes come to the conclusion, no, I may not come. This is not a feast with, I say, an open list invitation, but it's a, a feast with a guest list. And so the Catechism, in contrast to who may come, says very clearly, hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts, eat and drink judgment to themselves. They may not come. When we say this is a holy meal, we mean that it's something that God has sanctified, that God has set apart. It is not like an ordinary meal. That was one of the problems in the church at Corinth. Now, in this sacrament, God has instituted a holy meal. In fact, it's not the meal in which a meal to which you come to have your physical hunger satisfied. That was, again, the problem in Corinth. They We're told by Paul, if you're hungry, eat at home before you come. This is not a place to fill your stomach. This is not a place to drink wine so that you can become merry. But it's a holy meal. And the bread and the wine have been sanctified, set apart by God in the sacrament as symbols of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. This word holy is a word that's used often in Scripture to refer to certain things. And so in the Old Testament especially, the tabernacle had in it, and the temple later, holy garments, holy utensils, a holy altar. The temple itself was called holy. Jerusalem was called holy. And the idea is that God had taken this thing, which was, we could say, ordinary, and set it apart. And that's what God does in the Lord's Supper. He takes bread and wine and he sanctifies them. He takes this meal and he sets it apart as a holy meal. Now, as we saw this morning, that doesn't mean that in the consecration of the bread and the wine, they are transformed into something other than bread and wine. No, they remain bread and wine. But there's a special significance in this holy meal. 
That comes out in the titles that are given in Scripture for this sacrament. There are two main titles that are given. And if we turn back one chapter from where we read to chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, we see what they are. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16, and then verse 21. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And we use that word, communion, to describe this holy meal. It's a holy meal in which we have communion, in which we have fellowship with God himself through Jesus Christ. It's a table that God has prepared and at which God receives us as guests. The other word is the word Lord's Supper. And you find that in verse 21 of 1 Corinthians 10. Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. And then we read that again in chapter 11, verse 20. When ye come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It should have been, but they had so defiled it that it no longer was that. And the significance of that is that this is a table, or this is a supper, that belongs to the Lord. Just like we would say about Sunday, it is the Lord's day. It belongs to Him. So this table, it belongs to Him. It's His. And so it's necessary that we examine ourselves before we come to the sacrament because the table itself, the sacrament, the meal, is a sacred institution of God. That's evident in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is correcting the Corinthians about their celebration. He says it's not even what you're doing worthy of being called anymore the Lord's Supper. The Corinthians had defiled and corrupted the sacrament in at least these three ways. First, they had merged it with a traditional love feast. And so the sacrament had become something more like a potluck meal than a communion table. And he says to them, don't you have houses to eat in? Right? They were coming to have their stomachs filled, and he's saying that's not what it was for. Second, they had corrupted it this way, that they were very elitist in the way that they celebrated this supper. The rich brought their delicacies, and they served them to one another ahead of the poor coming. Or they stood in front of and obstructed the poor from coming to to partake. And then third... They corrupted it this way, and that's not so much here in chapter 11, but they didn't exercise discipline so that those who were living in public and open sin, the sin of incest in 1 Corinthians, were permitted to come to the table. And this brought the wrath of God down upon them as a congregation. What do you not have houses to eat in? This is not an ordinary meal. This is not a place for you to come together to fill your stomachs. This has been set aside. And then verse 27, even stronger, he says, The one who eats and drinks unworthily is guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. He's not talking here about murder, but he's talking here about taking something that is sacred, that God has sanctified and set apart, and making it common, profaning it. Treating the 
sacrament in the symbols of the sacrament as though it's nothing. Similar to the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, treating it like it's empty, like it has no meaning. So the meal itself is a sacred meal, so we must prepare for it. But then we must also prepare for it. It's necessary that we do because we are sinners, not in a general sense regarding humanity do we speak, but we speak here concerning believers who come to the table. You and I are not without sin. And self-examination then is necessary, not just once before perhaps we come to confession of faith and there acknowledge that we are sinners and that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, but it's something that's necessary each time we come to the sacrament. Indeed, it's commanded here, let a man examine himself and so let him come and so let him eat. We may not come and we may not eat until first we have examined ourselves. And this self-examination is all by itself healthy for believers. And the distinction between those who may come and may not come is not a distinction between believers and unbelievers only, but it's a distinction between believers who come worthily and believers who come unworthily. And that, of course, is the distinction that's pointed to in the Catechism. Those who are living persistently in a way of sin without repentance may not come. And those who are sorrowful for their sins may come. And again, that's what Paul is getting at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. After he speaks of the words of institution, he says to them in verse 30, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep. And he doesn't mean they're sleeping, but he means they're dead. God's judgments had come on the church at Corinth. And God afflicted those who came unworthily to the sacrament with illness. And God struck some of them with death. You have to remember that this was during the apostolic age and that God used miracles as ways of making revelation. And that's what God is doing. And now Paul puts that here in the scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as a warning to us. God can come to us with the same judgments and the wrath of God can come in the same kind of way upon us, but maybe not now striking us with illness and death, but spiritual judgment. They eat and drink damnation to themselves, Paul says. We must never think as we come to the table of the Lord that we're beyond sin or that if we come in sin without sorrow, we'll be spared the chastening of the Lord. And that's why the point is made in the catechism concerning hypocrisy. There are hypocrites and then there are believers who live in hypocrisy. A hypocrite is one who doesn't believe at all. He simply puts a religious front on and it looks as though he's a believer. He's acting. That's what the word hypocrite means. It's someone who's an actor who puts a mask on. But believers can do the same as they walk in a sin without repentance and then they put a mask on. They live in hypocrisy. They trick people. And they go on in their sin. And 
the Bible is telling us here that if you're living in hypocrisy, you must repent. And you may not come with hypocrisy to the table. So that's the necessity of our self-examination. The table is holy, and we have remaining sin, and we need to be warned. That brings us to the second point of the sermon, which has to do with the practice. And if you look in the bulletin on the sermon outline, you see four questions there. Before we look at those four questions, I want to talk a little bit about how we as believers can implement the practice of self-examination. You're going to ask yourself the questions of self-examination. They're going to be asked of you tonight. And if the Spirit is working in your soul as the Word is preached tonight, you're going to personally be asking yourselves those questions. But as we prepare for the table of the Lord, we should consider this from day, day to day in this coming week. Meditate on these questions. Answer them from Scripture. Answer them honestly. And prayerfully, so that it produces sorrow and repentance and faith in our lives. The goal is not just simply to get you to the Lord's Supper, but the goal is spiritual growth, your spiritual growth. That's the value of self-examination. And that makes it valuable for every one of us, boys and girls, young people. These are questions for you to ask yourself tonight, too, and to... Ask yourself this week. These are not just questions for those who come to the sacrament. All of us need to grow spiritually. Before we ask these questions, I want to emphasize again that the answer to these questions is not going to be this. Therefore, I am worthy to partake. In some ways, that's an unfortunate word in the King James and in the English language in connection with the Lord's Supper. This is not talking about the worthiness of ourselves as we come, but it's really the idea of something being suitable, adapted, appropriate. That's the idea. And the worthiness is not in us. The worthiness is in Jesus Christ. And we must come by the work of God's grace in a way that's appropriate to the one, the Lamb who is worthy. How do we come in an appropriate way to his table? Well, we would use this this, uh, idea of worthy or suitable with regard to, for example, the way that we dress for certain things. Well, how do we come worthy in a suitable, appropriate manner into the presence of Christ? And here the Lord's Supper in the preparatory section that we read and the catechism, which really parallels the same ideas, are especially helpful for us with these questions. These questions are aimed not just at the examination of the externals, but they're aimed as they are personal questions for us to ask, they're aimed at our hearts, at the sincerity of our coming. They're concerned with uncovering hypocrisy. 
insincerity. And so the examination of ourselves begins in our hearts. How do you come? Four questions. First, am I truly sorry for my sin? Am I truly sorry for my sin? We sang a little earlier, Psalter number 110. Did you sing these words sincerely? My sins are more than I can count. My heart is failed for grief. Be pleased, O Lord, to rescue me. O haste to my relief. Overwhelmed. Overwhelmed, not there with simply a sense of guilt before God, but overwhelmed with the consciousness of specific personal sins. More, he says, than I can count. All of us who come as sinners, but here's the difference between the hypocrite and the one who comes to partake appropriately. Do I sorrow? Do I grieve over my sin? Am I saddened by it? Do I realize that my love for God is imperfect? Am I characterized by humility? Do I confess specific sins? And the form helps us here by telling us to, to consider the weight of the wrath of God on Jesus Christ. What Jesus Christ had to pay. And there's the great debt of our sin. Considering your sins may mean this week that in your preparation for the Lord's Supper, you acknowledge and confess specific sins that are patterns in your life. Vices that you must forsake. Behaviors in your marriage or family that are destructive to others. Language of the world that readily comes across your lips. The psalmist puts it this way in Psalm 19. Who can understand his errors? Who can understand his besetting secret sins? He says, cleanse thou me from secret faults keep thy servant back from presumptuous sins let them not have dominion over me secret sins and presumptuous sins am I sorry truly sorry for my sins the second question is this do I really trust in Jesus Christ do I find all my righteousness in him? That's the way the form wants us to think of it. That's, this, sor this trust in Jesus Christ is, of course, the other side of the coin of sorrow over sin. Because sorrow over sin is more than just regret. Sorrow over sin is faith in Jesus Christ it's produced by the Holy Spirit and it directs us away from ourselves to the Savior do you plead for mercy do you come empty do you acknowledge the grace of God 
Are you trusting in Jesus Christ alone for your pardon and forgiveness? The alternative, of course, is to trust yourself. And we know that comparison from the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the publican who went up to pray. And what did the Pharisee say? Lord, thanks. Thanks. I'm thankful, Lord, that you've made me so that I'm not like other people. I'm not like this miserable publican over here. Lord, I'm glad that I fast twice a week, that I give a tithe, a tenth of all that I possess. What does Jesus say? That man goes home with no sense of justification because he doesn't have true faith. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. We ask ourselves tonight, not am I worthy, but do I know my unworthiness? Do I rest in Jesus Christ? And maybe there are some here who have never done that. You've gone along with all the outward practices of the Christian life. You've managed to deceive the elders, your family members, you're a faithful churchgoer, you know the Bible and your theology, but you don't really trust in Jesus. That's the question tonight, isn't it? Do I think that I'm pretty good? Or do I really trust in Jesus Christ? The third question is this. Do I want my faith to become stronger? Do I want to grow in faith? Is that my desire We don't have perfect faith. We never will have perfect faith on this side of the grave. And God has promised to preserve us in our faith by His grace. But our faith can always grow. And we must get rid of the notion that we've arrived. Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that living as Christians, we are running a race. And he says that as he runs the race, he counts not himself. That is, I don't think of myself as one who is apprehended or one who has made it. He's saying, I haven't made it yet. And so what does Paul do? He says, this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, reaching forward to the things that are before me, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, so that, he says, I may be found in Him, not having my own righteousness. He wants to grow in faith in Jesus Christ. Do you want to grow in faith? You remember the man that came to Jesus and asked for his son to be healed, and Jesus says, if you believe, your son can be made whole. And he says, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. He acknowledged his doubts. And so think about the ways that your faith can become stronger. That's different 
than growing in knowledge, growing in faith. How do we respond sometimes to the Lord's hand? With fear? To the Lord's distribution with discontent? May our faith grow so that we have peace, that we have trust, that we're not satisfied with where we're at in the Christian life, that we want our relationship with God to be stronger so that when we open the Scriptures and we read them, we believe them. We believe the promises. Is your desire for your faith to grow? And then the fourth question do you desire to live a life that is more holy? Are you serious about that? Do you want progress in the life of sanctification? This, of course, has more to do with, has more, has, is more than just our outward conduct. But what we're looking for as we look for growth in sanctification is a heart that's growing that's growing in its love for God, that's growing in its appreciation for salvation, that's growing in its recognition of sin, that's growing in its awareness of my besetting sins, that's a growing in wisdom, so that there's a quicker display in my life of the fruits of the Spirit when I come into difficult situations. Am I patient? Am I kind? Am I long-suffering? We want to grow and mature as Christians, a greater awareness then of God and of the fact that I lived before Him, what we've been talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm His child in this world. So these are the questions. And of course we find that we fall short, don't we? In every respect. And that's the benefit of self-examination then, not to drive me into despair, but to deepen my sorrow over sin, to increase my trust in Jesus Christ, to cause me to grow in faith in his word and in gratitude, which produces holiness. So that we may come to the table with a spiritual understanding as the apostle puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that we might be able to discern the Lord's body now that's a very interesting phrase what does that mean to discern the Lord's body there are two ways that that has been interpreted on the one hand it's that you discern the Lord's body in the bread and you discern the Lord's blood in the wine. The other is that discerning the Lord's body refers to the church. The church is his body. And one of the great problems in Corinth was that they didn't think about the other members of the church. Especially they despised the poor and they stepped ahead of them and they didn't give them a place at the table. They weren't discerning the Lord's body. 
So which one is it? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that we have this idea of Roman Catholicism that the bread is the body, and so what we're discerning is the physical presence of Jesus Christ. That's not the idea. But it means this, that we come to the table in faith. That we come to the table remembering and celebrating the suffering of Jesus Christ in his broken body and his poured out blood. And then we do that remembering, of course, the church. The form makes a beautiful description of that, doesn't it? That we are part of his body out of many grains being ground. There's one bread that's baked. Out of many berries being pushed, pressed together, one wine floweth. And so we come to the table discerning the Lord's body. It means coming in repentance and sorrow and being able to partake of the Lord's Supper with a clear conscience. Being able to come without obstruction. And then we can receive the bread and wine with spiritual benefit in which we contemplate the reality that Christ himself gave his body and he poured out his blood and he did that for me. He instituted the Lord's Supper as a perpetual celebration for his church because he had me in mind. He wanted me to know his body was broken and his blood shed for me. He knew something of the weakness of my faith and the doubts and the struggles that I would have. And he added to the word the visible sign. And he said, remember what I've done for you. The goal is that we come to be spiritually fed with Jesus Christ, who is the bread from heaven. The goal is to come believing in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus says in John 6, verse 35, He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth in me shall never thirst. And so we come to the table believing that he's the bread to sustain our souls to everlasting life. And he's the wine to fill us with joy as we await his coming. So with humble hearts, this week, prepare yourselves to come to the Lord's Supper with these questions. Am I truly sorry for my sins? Do I really trust in Jesus Christ alone? Do I desire to grow in faith? And do I desire to grow in holiness? And may God give us the grace to be able to answer those questions affirmatively so that we come with profit. Amen. Father, we ask that as we consider by ourselves 
our sins and what Christ has done, that sorrow, repentance, and gratitude may sincerely be produced by the work of the Holy Spirit so that as we come to the sacrament, we may rejoice in what Christ has done for us. In his name we pray. Amen.